Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to Facing the Canon. My guest on the program is media producer and filmmaker, Dr. Phil Cook. Dr. Phil Cook, welcome to Facing the Canon. I am honored to be here. My second time, by the way. This is fantastic. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you for crossing the pond oh, to be really with good. us. Where are you from? Well, I'm based in Los Angeles, as you know, and we've been in Malta filming a documentary on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. We've been there for a week and we were on the way home. And I thought, hey, if I have to change planes in London, I'm gonna get, get off and call you first. Well, and so I did, and you said, we're taping, come on over, and here we are. Absolutely. It worked out great. Now, you <laughs> are a man of adventure. Yes. You've fallen out of a helicopter. Yeah, You've been shot at. Mm -hmm. When did you fall out of a helicopter? Well, we were filming a big evangelistic event in Jamaica. This is 25 or more years ago. This is quite a long time. And, and it was an outdoor stadium event, which you've done many times. And I thought, as it was filling up, I thought if I could shoot this from the air, it would be amazing. But at the time, there was no company that did aerial photography. There was no drones. There were no helicopter companies, except I discovered Red Stripe Beer Company, the Jamaican beer company had a helicopter. So I went racing across the island, talked them into letting me have it for an hour. And so their pilot helped me set it up and it wasn't rigged for a camera. So we took the door off. I sat on the side with my feet hanging out. He literally tied me in with a rope and we took off. And as we turned to go over Kingston Bay towards the, towards the stadium, we discovered there was an extra loop in the rope that we didn't know about. <laughs> and I just slid right out. I mean, he turned sharp, I slid out and I'm dangling by a rope over Kingston Bay. Those kind of moments will get you right with God. <laughs> so they do. There's no question about it. Now, what about where were you shot at? Well, we were filming in Africa. I've done this twice during military coup. It was, were, the country was having a military coup. And um, we uh, found out we were pushing things a little too far with how far they were gonna let us go. We wanted to get some filming up in the front. And um, we found out they didn't like that so much. So they started shooting back at us and it wasn't very pleasant. But hey, it's a great story to tell your grandkids. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you, you grew up in a Christian home. I did. Have you always known the Lord? You know what? It sounds weird to say, but I'm, I, I, can't, I have no memory of what it was like not being a Christian. Uh, my dad was a pastor. I grew up behind the scenes. I probably filled 100,000 communion cups in my lifetime. Uh, I mowed the cemetery at the church. It was a 100-year-old cemetery back then. And by the way, that was 100 years ago. They used wooden coffins. And I, here I am, 12 years old, mowing the cemetery. And I discovered those wooden coffins rot after a while. And I'll never forget, one time I was mowing over a grave, and it collapsed. And I went down into it. And you see things down there that you probably shouldn't <laughs> see when you're 12. And my dad panicked, totally panicked. He said, the family can't see this. So we got, he said, filled it up, covered over. So I was 12. So I got concrete blocks, I got broken lawn chairs, I got an old wooden picnic table that was busted up. I just filled it with everything I could find, garbage bags, and then covered it over with dirt. And I was really proud of myself until I realized later that when the rapture happens, that guy's never getting out of there. <laughs> so yeah, growing up in the, behind the scenes in a church is an interesting experience. Fascinating. Now, obviously, even growing up yep. at school, I, mm -hmm. I gather yep. you, you made a film to mm -hmm. show at yeah. school. I had a group group of friends in high school that we made movies. Never crossed my mind that you could do this for a living. I never thought that that might be a career choice. I was gonna be a piano player because Preacher's Kids, that was the gig. You played the piano back in those days. And, uh, but we made little movies. And when I went to college, I took a few of them with me. I thought maybe I'll find some buddies in college that wanna do this. 
And literally the first day uh, I was unpacking, my, a couple of my films fell out of my suitcase. A guy across the hall said, hey, I, I'm taking a film class. I can show you how to edit those. I didn't know that you could even cut film back in those days. And he took me down. We worked on it that night and the professor happened to be there. And at the end of the evening, he walked over, introduced himself and said, you know, I've been watching your little movie out of the corner of my eye and I've got students that have been taking this for my classes for two or three years that aren't this good. Could I show it to my class tomorrow? So I said, sure, if you'll let me sit on the back row. And um, so I did the next day and he showed my class. And, and believe me, it was not a great film. I can, I can tell you that. However, when it was over, they talked about it. They discussed it. And this revelation hit me. I don't think I've had such a clear, crystal clear moment since, before or since, that if I can do something with a camera that makes people talk, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I literally changed my major that day and I've never looked back. You did a doctorate on a very interesting <laughs> subject. What subject well, did you choose? Well, I got a doctorate and uh, I got my PhD in, in theology because we, the focus of our, our Cook Media Group is our team in Los Angeles. And we work with churches, ministry organizations, a lot of nonprofits. And I wanted to speak the language of our clients, the people we work with. And so I've always been fascinated with theology. And um, so I decided to get a PhD in theology. And um, I wrote my dissertation on the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, which yes. kind of freaked out my professors. But I got an A, so there you go. There you go. <laughs> now, later on in life, uh, yeah. you're working in various places. Then you got one of your jobs got terminated. Oh, yes. 36 years old, I got fired. And, um, you know, at the time I was devastated. I was shocked, but, uh, I went home, told my wife, Kathleen, you know, we had two little girls at the time. We sat on the ed edge of the bed. We cried a little bit, but after a few years, we realized I didn't get fired. God fired me. You know, I, we, we all, I, you know, God, I knew God had called me to Hollywood and yet I can rationalize anything. I, I can make up excuses. We had a good church. Our kids were in good schools. My friends were there. We were all in the Midwest. We loved it, but, uh, and I kept telling God, you know, I know you're sp I'm supposed to come to Los Angeles, but maybe I could commute. Maybe I could fly back and forth. And I think, I think he got fed up with me and just fired me. And uh, when we moved out there, I realized ultimately it was the best thing that could have ever happened. Because that closed one door, exactly. but opened up another. I tell people all the time, you know, closing doors can be the very best thing you could possibly, could possibly happen to you. That certainly was true for me. And uh, it completely opened up a whole new world. We launched our company, Cook, Cook Media Group, and uh, we've never looked back. It's been amazing. Well, you, you and your wife, Kathleen, incredibly creative people. Well, thank you. Uh, you are, and we've been beneficiaries of, <laughs> of your wisdom and advice. W what is it that you basically do now? Well, you know, we, we work with churches, ministry organizations, and nonprofits, helping them use the media more effectively. Here's the thing, as you know very well, we live in a media-driven culture. And I think one of the reasons that Christianity is disappearing from our culture, we're being marginalized, is we don't speak that language. There's a lot of groups out there today that are not godly groups, but they speak the culture, they speak the language of the culture, which is media. And as a result, they're getting heard out there. Uh, I think one of your quotes, Phil, because <laughs> um, I, I, I receive your regular updates and emails and 
and the articles that both you and your wife Kathleen write and find them always stimulating that you said that um, during the whole lockdown period yes. that the church was producing more media stuff than Hollywood. Yes, literally from my home office in Los Angeles, I can look out and see Walt Disney Studios, Warner Brothers Studios, Universal Studios, the Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, all these massive studios, and they were ghost towns. They went home, they sent everybody home for six, eight, nine months. They did not do a thing, and yet the church stepped up. I mean, it was amazing when churches were locked down, they didn't just stay at home. They brought in the communications people and the media team, and they did some amazing things. And so I, I worked throughout the pandemic. I was flying around the country. I kind of I kind of missed those days because I would be the only guy on the airplane. It was, it was amazing. Um, but we were working with churches all over the country. I got to see how pastors and leaders responded to the pandemic. And it was really quite remarkable. I mean, Absolutely. I some, there's some great things happened during that and, time. And one of the, uh, I, I think I've read almost, I don't want to say I've read every book of yours, but I think <laughs> I have actually. But I tell you, I became a, a Dr. Phil You're Cook very kind. fan years ago. But during lockdown, yeah. you came up with this book, Maximize Your Influence. Yes. Okay, what prompted you to write this? Well, I knew a lot of pastors were struggling. You know, when the, when the churches were locked down, certainly in the US and here in the UK and in, in much of Europe, pastors were really caught. They, uh, many of them were shocked and surprised. Now, I've been teaching, you know, preaching the gospel of live streaming and online ministry for a long, long time. So um, I started getting flooded with phone calls from pastor. What do we do? How do we do this? And um, so I, I decided I wanted to write some kind of a reference book for pastors to really understand how to engage people through the digital media world. And so whether it's a website or short videos or live streaming or whatever, how do we do this? Because here's the thing. Most people don't realize how revolutionary the digital, this digital revolution has been. It's been amazing. And uh, it's not just, the, when the printing press came along, it changed education, it changed a number of things. But I'll tell you, the digital revolution has changed medicine, it's changed business, it's changed the way we do everything. And so as ministry leaders, we need to understand how that works. And so I wanted to create a book that could be a reference book on every pastor's desk in the world to sit there so when he has a question about a website or you know vid, vid, uh, video or something something else, he could refer to it and uh, get, get answers to it. It's so yeah. important. The, the strap line that's on the book, how to make digital media work for your church, your ministry, and you. Just give us a couple of tips. Oh, great, okay, good example. Um, one thing pastors do not realize is that you know, most pastors build their church website for their church members. Church members never look at their website. They, they, church members never go to a church website. They know where the church is. They know who the pastor is. They know when the services start. They have no reason to ever go to the church website. But I can guarantee you that virtually 100% of new visitors these days will check you out online before they ever come to visit. So one thing pastors need to understand is stop thinking about your website in terms of your congregation and start thinking your webs about your website as a tool to engage people to come and visit the church. How do I create such a compelling website that people think I have to go yes, to that place? I have totally, to visit that place. Totally. What a Little great, things like that can make yeah. such a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, full of, oh goodness, wonderful ideas, tips, and very refreshing. Very but I want to move on to your new book, <laughs> Phil, and it's called Ideas 
on a deadline. Yeah. Interesting. When I first heard about this, it kind of like I do this on a deadline, and uh, but actually, yes, I have read this in manuscript form. Wow. Normally. In manuscript form, when I read them, I'm kind of scanning, scanning. Yes. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, I couldn't scan because I really did need to read a lot of it. Okay, what prompted kind. you to write this? Well, it's interesting that, um, you know, first of all, whenever I talk on creativity, I do a lot of speaking and, and um, on creativity and leading creative people. Churches don't do a very good job, by the way, of leading creative people, designers, writers, video people, those kind of guys. We could do better. But whenever I do talk about it, I always get people that come up to me and say, well, Phil, I'm not a creative person. You know, I just, I've never been very creative. Well, let me tell you something. There is no research, none whatsoever that indicates some people are born creative and some aren't. I mean, put a group of toddlers in a room. They're all wildly creative. Nobody looks at that little kid and says, oh, he'll be an accountant one day. He's not very creative. They're all wildly creative. But research also indicates we start losing creativity about age six, which is when we start school. What is it about our education system that maybe you know, encourages us to lose our creativity. But the bottom line is two things are important. Everyone is creative. We just don't, we need to exercise that muscle. And creativity does not diminish with age. There's a ton of research out there that indicates we're just as creative in our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s as we were in our 20s and 30s. So people just do it, need to embrace that. And I wrote the book not just for artists or designers or writers, but uh, I wrote it really for everybody. Real estate agents need to be creative. Teachers need to be creative. Doctors need to be creative. Evangelists need to be creative. I mean, you're thinking the amount of material you come up with constantly. So I wanted to really inspire people to understand that the, the ideas on a deadline is the idea that, you know what, I, I've spent my whole career working against the clock. You know, I'm producing television programs. I, I produced a couple Super Bowl commercials in America, and they're not going to they're not going to change the date of the Super Bowl because I can't come up with a good idea. You know, they're, they're going to, it's going to happen no matter what. So I've learned a certain amount of discipline about how to create, how to make ideas happen when you need them the most. And there's some interesting research out there about it. So I put all those things into a big bucket and I wrote the book around that because I think we need to understand how to have breakthrough ideas. If we're going to engage the culture well today, we need to understand how to have the ideas we need when we need them. Okay, so how do we cr um, discover those ideas? Well, you have to buy the book. <laughs> <I'm teasing>. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, there's a lot of ways, and, and it's interesting. I have a, a number of chapters on different techniques people use. For me, for instance, one of the things I've discovered is banging my head against my desk is not going to work. You know, sometimes we sit at our desk and we think, oh, I've got to come up with this idea. I've got to come up with this idea. And we sit there and nothing happens. First of all, get out of there get out of your office, go take a walk, go take a hike. We, there's a ton of research. Soren Kierkegaard, the theologian, loved walking. He was addicted to walking. Um, so many people, in fact, um, uh, Beethoven took musical sheets with him wherever he went and he would go on long walks. In fact, Charles Dickens wrote a book about called Night Walks, a little book I picked up the last time I was here in London. Uh, he went through about a year of insomnia, terrible insomnia, and would go walking all night. And many people today think, the, the amazing characters Charles Dickens came up with came up through those night walks that he would take through downtown London. So first of all, get out of there. Another thing is go where the problem is. You know, I, I've very often in my career, I've discovered that sitting in a conference room, sitting at my desk, nothing's going to happen there. But if I can go where the issue is, you know, I tell, I tell leaders, if the problem is in the parking lot, take the team to the parking lot and have the meeting there. 
the park, if the problem is somewhere else, go there. So just getting out, that makes a huge, huge difference. And by the way, walking is great because your subconscious yes. takes over. Willie Nelson said he did his best, he wrote his best songs driving in the car. So anything you can do where your subconscious just kind of floats. Some people are an advocate of showers. I, I tell you. Well, when, you are. Oh, my gosh. But when don't I take you a have shower, a, note, a I note? I do. Yeah, I was complaining. <laughs> Well, I get, when the water hits me, I get brilliant ideas. But by the time I get out of the shower, dry off, find a pen and paper, I've forgotten them. So I was complaining about it one day in the office. And, and one of the girls in the office went online, found a company called Aquanotes. And they make waterproof legal pads. <laughs> I'm serious. And my productivity has gone through the roof. So now I just have my waterproof legal pads in the shower. And I can in the shower. Yeah. Because there is something about you're in the shower. And um, I think we relax. Yes. And because... There's that sense of relaxation. Uh, so we true. also produce a particular hormone. Yes. And, and creativity flows. Yeah, we don't try too hard. That's the problem. Trying too hard is a great way to shut down your, you know, your ideas. I think very often you just have to let it go. And whether it's walking, whether it's driving, sometimes I'll go out and shoot baskets in the driveway. Although I start thinking about my shot and then I, I can't come Time. up with ideas. So it's better just to let your mind wander and if you can do that. And, and another great way is during dreams. You know, the Bible talks about dreams throughout. And um, I, I've discovered I don't have, I don't find great solutions in my dreams. What I do discover is my dreams help me make connections that I would have never made before. You know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night with a aha moment that I'd never thought of when I was concentrating on it. But I think God works in, well, obviously mysterious ways. And um, it's amazing how often we come up with that stuff. Now, I, I find, um, Phil, with me, uh, I've got so many trains running in my head, <laughs> not enough yes. rail tracks. So that, <laughs> that's my problem. But the trains yes. are all right. So how do we uh, discern what's a good idea and what's a God idea? That's a great question. And well, first of all, I would say is we need to understand how to capture the ideas when they come. Part of our problem is um, when we have a lot of ideas, we, we always, you know, how many times have you woken up in the middle of the night with a brilliant idea and you think, oh, I'm going to remember that in the morning. And of course, you wake up in the morning, you don't, rem you don't remember. completely forgot about it. So wherever I go, I have a little little pen, uh, a note, some notepads in my, my back pocket. I've got a couple apps on my iPhone. Um, I want to be able to capture the ideas when they happen. It's so incredibly important. Ideas are the most fragile thing in the world. Uh, and if you don't capture them, you'll forget them. I, I, I met a guy years ago, and I'll be quick with this, but I met a South African businessman years ago at a, a Christmas party in Los Angeles. And I have the spiritual gift of asking what everybody else in the room is thinking. So I said, well, how did you, he was very wealthy. And I said, well, how did you make your money? He said, well, it's interesting you ask. He said, seven or eight years ago, my wife asked me to go shopping with her. And he said, I hate shopping, but I love my wife, so I went shopping with her. He said, we'd shop for about an hour, and I'd had, I'd had about enough, so I sat on a bench in the mall while she went in to look at dresses. And he said, I started watching kids use their cell phones. And this is back, he said, back in the days of flip phones. And he said, this idea hit me out of the blue that what if they could download their favorite songs and use those as ringtones on their phones? And he said, nobody had ever thought of that before. So he, he, he thought, this is good. And, and he found a brochure on the bench, got a pen, wrote it down, and put it in his pocket as his wife called him into the store to look at a dress. He said he walked in the store, completely forgot about the idea. He said six months went by. He went to the closet, put on that same jacket, reached in the pocket, found the note, and said, oh, this is good. i got to do something. So he bought the rights to five songs, got a computer server set up, and he said two years later he sold that company for $70 million dollars. 
And he said, I would have completely forgotten about that idea had I not written it down. And I'll tell you, that, that conversation completely changed my life. I write it down. You never know where that $70 million is And the other moral of that from. story is go shopping with your wife. Go shopping with your wife, <laughs> you yes. you'll get some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> See? No. Absolutely. So as you reflect, yeah. you're, you're a reflector. Well, you're a bit of both. You, you kind of, you've got hindsight. You look back <laughs> and you assess. Yep. Uh, but you've got insight. Okay, as you look back, and as you look forward, what advice would you give, particularly to church leaders? Well, as we come out of it, you know, we've, we've been coming out of this whole COVID thing, and we're going to be coming out of it for a while. And I, I think we need to kind of rethink our priorities. I'm hearing some really interesting things out there. One of the things that was most interesting that I discovered during the pandemic and the church shutdown was pastors tried some really unique things to engage with their congregation. Some stayed in the pulpit, you know, even when people couldn't come, they did their service from the pulpit, had their singers come up there. Others went home and did it from their living room. Some, you know, sat at a bistro table on a stool and taught from there. Others did it in a spare room on the church campus somewhere. People tried different things. Now that we're coming out of it, I'm having a remarkable number of pastors say, you know, Phil, we've been doing church pretty much the same way for the last 200 years. We change our music a little bit, you know, sometimes we change the order of the service a little bit, but certainly for most of our lifetime, it's been pretty much the same. And I'm hearing pastors saying, maybe it's time we shake things up. There's nothing in the Bible about what an order of service should look like. And for instance, I'm having, I, I, I found one pastor of a pretty large church in the U.S. who is going to continue live streaming three Sundays a month. And on the fourth, they're going to do a big worship concert on Friday night. They're taking their entire congregation to the street on Saturday. Then to, they have a heart for the homeless and addicted pe people with addiction issues. And then they're going to have a huge service on Sunday. But they'll only do it once a month. But they're going to own that whole weekend for the church. Others are following a Catholic kind of a daily mass example. where I've got one pastor in Florida that has three or 400 people every morning in a Facebook group where he does teaching for about 40 minutes at 7 a.m., does it Monday through Friday, and then about three or 4,000 people watch it played back during the rest of the day. And I've got another guy I met recently who's done communion online for 654 days in a row. And so I, whether you like those ideas or not, it's interesting sure. to me that pastors are mixing it up. Let's, what, what could we do to more effectively reach people today? That's, that's very exciting. It is very exciting. So are you, are you quite... I know you are. You're you're not a, gla a glass half empty kind right. of guy. Uh, you're not even a glass half full kind of guy. You're an overflowing kind of a guy. But as you look forward, yeah. um, we're up against a lot. We are of other struggles as well. Yeah. And what what what's, what do you discern? You know, this is this. I don't. This may be off topic, but uh, the, one of my greatest concerns is. And this is why you're so good. You, you, you probably are better than anyone I know at just sharing the gospel with people. I, 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 we, you and I have been together for years yes. and years. And I've seen you just start up a conversation with a waitress at a restaurant, uh, with somebody standing in line at the market. It's so natural for you. And yet statistically, the vast, vast majority of Christians in the Western world will, will live their whole life and never once share the gospel with a single person. That really frustrates me. I mean, the fact that we could go, we could hold this secret, this amazing, you know, bit of knowledge, this, this life-changing story, and yet not tell a single person. And that, we, we wonder why 
Christianity is, is just having less and less impact in the culture. And largely it's because we don't have a marketing problem. We have a Salesforce problem. We just don't believe in the product. And if there was anything I'd want to do is how do we inspire Christians just to be better Christians? It's like, yes. you know, how do we, how do we, yes. uh, I think that's, that's the critical thing. We're going to change people, not by the next big Christian movie or the next big Christian television show. All those things are great. And I, I'm, I'm, I love that stuff, but we're going to really change the culture when we just start talking about it. And, and we're unashamed And our product, Phil, yes. is a person. It's amazing. Jesus yes. Christ. Yes. The way, the truth, and the life. Yes. Yeah, well, if you wrote the attributes of our product on the package, it would be eternal life. It would be, you know, have a purpose, you know, have a meaning for the rest of your life, have a relationship. All those, it's fantastic. And yet we don't talk about that. And that really bothers me. So how do we get the cork out of the bottle? <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. And Jonathan Bach and I wrote it together. And one of the, it just, the, the statistics, we, we're both marketing and media guys. And we thought, you know, Christianity is, is losing its impact because we're not telling the story well. And that's a part of it. But once we got into it and started really studying it, we realized we're just not, very good Christians. It's like going to the headquarters of Coca-Cola and find out everybody there is drinking Pepsi. Um, we're just not, we're not living the life God's called us to live. So I just think in everything that we do, I would just encourage people, you know, start with your neighbor. I know in, in the U.S., something like 78% of Americans don't know their neighbor's name. I mean, that's amazing. It is amazing. You don't have to, you don't have to start by witnessing to them. Just go take, just go over yeah. and start a conversation. Take that, them a pie. That's actually quite shocking. It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, and for those of us who, who know Jesus. Yes. Because, yeah. because people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Exactly. So if we don't care. That's exactly right. But th exactly this is right. the irony of it, isn't it, Phil? Oh, we believe in global evangelization, <laughs> but we ignore our next door neighbor. <laughs> That's right. You know, exactly and I right. often say, why did, let's all go on a missions trip. Let's just walk next door. <laughs> yes. That's one of my favorite quotes of yours. Isn't it? I love it. It's true. It's true. It's true. And, and yeah, and I, I think we farmed it out to the professionals. You know, J. John's a professional, so I'm going to let him reach the lost. Uh, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll write him a check. I'll support him, which is great. But there's a role for us to play. And we need to do it as well. And uh, how many opportunities do we have to just start that conversation with somebody? And we don't. And so I think we need to. So you and your wife, Kathleen, uh, in the foreseeable future, yeah. what kind of... Um, plans have you got? Well, we launched a nonprofit a few years ago called the Influence Lab. We've had so many requests from Christians around the world to come and teach them about media. How do we use social media for the gospel? How do we build websites? How do we film and do documentaries and short films and things? And so literally, I've got six or eight requests at any given moment on my desk all the time. And and so we started a little nonprofit uh, for people to help us, help us fund the effort. And because I'm living and working in Hollywood, we can bring some Christians who are high-level professionals in the industry to the table to, to go internationally. And I've had friends of mine that produce $200 million movies who said, hey, Phil, I'll go anywhere you want to go. I wanna, I'd love to, to share how to, how to produce media for people overseas. And so um, that's a real effort of ours. I'd really like to focus more and more on that because there's such a need around the world uh, for, for media training. Yeah, it was really good. Phil, you're creative, you're inspiring, as is your <laughs> wife, Kathleen. And uh, thank you for all your offerings. Keep doing what you're doing. You're an absolute you're tonic. Kind. Thanks well, thank for you. coming <laughs> on Facing the Canon. Lovely to have you. Thank you. 
Well, my friend Phil is is a tonic and uh, I'm always inspired when I'm with him. I hope you've been inspired. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. J. John and Chris Wally's much-loved book, Jesus Christ the Truth, is now available in paperback edition. Take this opportunity to purchase copies at a low cost and pass them on to friends, family, neighbours and colleagues. Buy three for the price of two at £6 per copy or buy 50 copies for £2.50 per copy. An ideal book to give away to those who want to know who Jesus is. Pass it on. Available now at canonjjohn.com.